In front of a peacock at Botanical Gardens. On a Norman mount in the pouring rain. Where's the strangest place you've ever done it? On Starbridge Town football pitch. On the steps of Brindley Place in a grandma's costume. Hello and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Luke Plimmer. And I'm Michael McLernan. And in each episode, we take a look at a different aspect of the world of Amdram and feature an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and even the times where they've died on stage. Our backstage pass holder, John O'Neill, will also take us behind the scenes at the Crescent Theatre, Birmingham, to discover more about what goes into making a great amateur production. And today's episode is all about performing outside the relative safety and comfort of a theatre building, and I'll be talking to James Knapp about his experiences of outdoor performance. James is an experienced actor and director, and is currently directing an outdoor touring production of Pygmalion. At the top of the episode, you heard some of the places people have performed or watched a performance that wasn't a theatre. Let's hear some more. Where's the strangest place you've done it? In a lift in college. Blackpool Beach. (laughs) (laughs) By the floozy in the jacuzzi. A farm. In a cave in Edinburgh. Front of a moving train. The gym. An abandoned church. In a castle in Wales. Under a full moon in the grounds of St David's Cathedral in Wales. In the university basement by candlelight. On a beach in Swansea. In a fountain. Some very interesting places indeed. We turn now to a play that is touring to multiple outdoor venues. Luke Plimmer talks to theatre director James Knapp about his upcoming production of George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion. Okay, so joining us now, we've got uh, James Knapp, who is directing Pygmalion at the Crescent Theatre. Thanks for coming on, James. Lovely to speak to you. No problem. So, James, uh, tell us about your first love. Um, I always remember when I was young being taken to pantomimes you know, back in Western Supermare, so not the highest quality pantomimes, but I remember really enjoying those because it was part of Christmas. But um, I think uh, the first time I, I thought very seriously about theatre and wanting to get to know more was when I went on a school trip and I think we went to see Hamlet and uh, I remember all my classmates being exceptionally bored. Um, and um, <laughs> But I was the only one who was on his edge of his seat, sort of loving every minute of that. And I think uh, I remember going home and wanting to, to know more about, about theatre and, you know, trying to get my mum to take me to more serious things than what sort of came to Western Supermare Playhouse. So yes. it was that sort of age. So that was sort of the beginning. So what's been the love of your theatrical life? Um, So many, really. Um, Lucky to sort of be able to act and direct through my my education through through my job um i think being part of the crescent theater for the past 10 years has been a real highlight because of the the variety of of plays i've been able to to either be in or direct um i just i never expected that from an amateur theater group when i I first joined 10 years ago and there's so many i could talk for hours and hours and hours about the roles that i've truly enjoyed i think my highlight was uh, Stones in His Pockets by Maria Coles, where myself and another member of the theatre, John, uh, played uh, two characters who then took on seven, eight different roles and oh. also had to have a variety of um, accents, which was a huge challenge, um, some successful, some not so successful. And I think that as a challenge is a highlight because uh, we we certainly had a sense by the end of it of 
the challenge that we'd overcome and hopefully entertained audiences along the way. So I think that was a real highlight, but I could pick so many from my 10 years at the Crescent. Great. Tell us about the one that got away. Um, I don't think there was anything that um, I wasn't able to do. I think it's more, <laughs> um, the, you know, the age old thing of, I just didn't get cast. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't yeah, right yeah, for the yeah, role yeah, at yeah. the time. So there was plenty that I've then, but to be fair, I don't think I've ever not been cast in something at the Crescent and, and then gone and thought that I could do a better job. It's always been cast the way it should be cast, but you always do sometimes go for things that you don't get and, you know, you're disappointed, but, you know, so there's plenty that possibly got away, but, uh, yeah. yeah, that's part and parcel of it. Yeah, it is, absolutely. And tell us about a time when you died on stage. I've been in many things that things have gone wrong. I think that's the nature of, oh, yeah. um, and the beauty of the fact that unlike professional um, groups, we don't have the luxury of previews, I guess, to iron out these things. We have a couple of dress rehearsals um, and then that's it. You're in front of an audience. You don't have that time to, to see what happens under the pressure of a live audience. Um, I've died character wise on stage quite a few times, actually. Um, which is always interesting. I think a problem for my other cast members because I'm well known to milk things on stage. <laughs> so <laughs> particular performances where my my death scene may have been 10 seconds opening night, but then by the end of the run, you could have gone and get, got yourself an ice cream or a pint of beer by the time <laughs> I'm still dying away. So I have died on stage and into many different uh, death lengths, etc. Awesome. So... Moving on now specifically more to Pygmalion, which you are directing at the moment. This is a play that uh, is going to be performed outside on some occasions. So have you ever performed or directed anything outside before? Um, I've been lucky enough to actually perform and direct outside for the Crescent Theatre on their summer tour. Um, I took part as an actor in Serrano de Bergerac, playing Serrano de Bergerac, and then most recently, a couple of years ago, as Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and lucky enough to direct Sense Sensibility, um, I think four or five years ago. Um, so I feel that that gives me a real insight into the demands of the summer tour and how I direct my actors towards a performance that suits that sort of arena. Yeah, awesome. So because you're directing another play now outside, do you think that there are any challenges that like come specifically with doing something outdoors? Um, yeah, today we were actually talking about that in rehearsal, about the challenges of uh, performing outside. Um, the lack of set is sometimes a problem, but also essentially an opportunity maybe. Uh, you don't have the luxury of visually being able to tell an, audi an audience where they are or yeah. what they're looking at. So we were talking today about the weather a great deal. So there's a scene where it's raining. So obviously the actors creating physical physical performances that show that it's raining, etc. Or So it's finding ways within the performance to give as much um, information to the audience. Uh, the other consideration, I guess, to outside performances is the actor's volume it's it's outside it's um they need a lot more volume diction etc it's a completely different challenge vocally than being in our studio or in our main house um, and again we we've, we're lucky to have uh karen kelly who's doing our sort of vocal assistant and she's been teaching them techniques 
to get their voices ready for for a challenge such as that um, and then just other challenges i guess um one of the best challenges i, I feel is uh one of our venues having a flight path across it uh that's always interesting especially when you're doing a a period piece you suddenly hear a you know the easyjet flight to malaga go across <laughs> it's hard to try and work that in in We've talked about challenges, but you also mentioned opportunity a moment ago as well. Now, do you think that there's anything when you're directing this play specifically that makes this play good for an outdoor performance? Yeah, I think that what's brilliant about this play is it's a real character piece. We have you have wonderful, wonderful characters, not just Henry Higgins or Eliza Doolittle, but you know every single one of the characters is a real larger than life character, which completely suits the out outdoor um, space uh, so the audience can really sit there and sort of take in the actors performances these over the top kind of larger than life characters and how they all collide in in this storyline okay so this production it's going on tour to lots of different venues in Birmingham do you think that that might make things a bit more difficult or are there any challenges in that regard that you think you need to overcome or does that just make it more enjoyable um, well, I think that going out on tour gives the actors something slightly different. I think what we really love about the Crescent, which is why I hope everyone's here, is is that it's enjoyable. Mm. You you get to, for a couple of weeks of your year, you get to live the life of an actor, turn up, the nerves backstage, the the nerves on stage, the enjoyment once it's all done, the drinks in the bar afterwards. And I think the tour's a lovely extension of that because you get to go to these beautiful wonderful places around the West Midlands to perform and uh, there's always a real sense of fun and everyone sort of mucking together getting things out of the van setting up for the day so it's slightly a, a different type of performance day to sure. if we were in the building but I think that's why people want to do the tour why they want to act in a tour because of of that nature of it being a different type of enjoyment. Yeah, and because this is outdoor, there's also a a couple of performances you're doing that are also indoors. Mm. So, are there any like special considerations you have to make for that? Or is I it... think we spend an awful lot of time in rehearsals talking about how they need to almost make their characters and their performances slightly larger than life because it transmits better out in the open. But we've also talked about how when we get into the studio how we can make those more subtle mm. that because the audience are very close that the all the audience can can see the actors uh, arguably better than when you're outside that you can find those moments of, of subtlety more in the studio than you can out on tour where it's a lot about the storytelling the volume making sure that everyone can see and hear what you're doing and what you're feeling as an actor yeah Great. Uh, James, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute delight to talk to no, you. No, thank you for having me. No, and I really look forward to seeing Pygmalion very, very soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Luke Plummer there, talking to James Knapp. Our backstage reporter, John O'Neill, also managed to catch up with some of the cast of Pygmalion in rehearsal. Hi, I've come deep into the heart of the theatre, down into the subterranean rehearsal room, hoping to catch Naomi, who's playing Eliza, and Colin, who's playing Henry Higgins, in the 2021 summer tour of Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. To set the scene, the Crescent's rehearsal room is around seven metres square, with no windows, wooden floor and bright fluorescent light. 
One of the walls is mirrored, floor to ceiling. The odd table, stack of chairs or stage prop sit at the edge of the space. The rehearsal room is a furnace of creativity where actors and directors work together to take the lines of a play and hammer them into life. It's a focused, driven space where you can feel the industrious atmosphere, the energy of the plays gone by, and those yet to be reawoken for an audience anew. Here are Naomi and Colin. Hi both. Hello there. Hello. Would you mind if I just distract you from your rehearsals just for a moment to speak to our podcast audience? No, not at all. Not a problem. So I play Eliza Doolittle. She's a cockney flower girl who, after a chance meeting with a professor of phonetics, is transformed. And I play that professor, Professor Henry Higgins, the, um, the expert in uh, speech, speech rhythms, accents. Wonderful. Thank you. How does it feel to be back in the rehearsal room after the pandemic restrictions we've all lived through? Oh, it feels amazing. Um, The first rehearsal was really surreal for me because I think it's been about two years personally since I've been in the rehearsal room, which is a long time. Um, And it's a place for me associated with so many happy memories, you know, rehearsing past plays that I've enjoyed so much. So it's just a real joy and a thrill to be back here again. It it certainly is. Uh, I've not been in here for about a year and three months, something like that. Um, And it felt at first very strange coming back, I have to say, after such a long time. But as soon as we started working on the play, it all kind of just clicked back into place and it did, in a way, feel as if we'd never been away, Mm -hmm. in a way. This is to both of you. Can you give us an example of your voice work that helped the audience? We've been lucky to have Karen Kelly um, uh, in to help us with that. Um, She's the Crescent's voice coach and she, she will work on accents and she will work on voice production and projection and, and, and all the rest of that. So she's given us some exercises to do, which will, you know, increase our uh, breath capacity and uh, improve our voice projection. Because, of course, as, as you may know, most of the performances of this play, we will be doing outside rather yeah. than inside. So that's a whole different ballgame altogether for, for an actor's voice you have to carry much, much, much further sometimes uh, in the outdoors with all the various sound distractions that you have in the natural environment. So she's been able to help us with that. It's an ongoing process. She's just begun that. Uh, and I imagine she will be back with... She, she sat in on a, a rehearsal a couple of days ago just to listen to us, and no doubt she took copious notes. Yes, and, she gave uh, me copious notes. So oh, it's very, I haven't very heard anything directly from me yet, but no doubt I will. But yeah, I've um, spoken to her a lot about the Cockney accent, and she tells me um, that it's quite a lazy accent, really. And one of the main things I found out about it, and with Karen's help figured out, that... Um, your mouth kind of, instead of dropping down as it does with RP, and I have a fairly RP accent, it sort of goes out to the side. Um, So that's one of her tips. And then my changes to me, so my mother becomes me mother, um, and we drop the TH sounds. Karen keeps picking up on times when I slip them back in, and I shouldn't. You put in an F Um, instead. Yeah, so thank you, and yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, And the L sound goes as well, so will you pay me for them becomes will you pay me for them. 
and uh, yeah, so there's lots to think about, you know, for someone who isn't Cockney. Yeah. Um, but it's just a case of sort of repetition and I try and hear it in my head, how I know it should sound, and then just try and mimic that really, what I can hear. Um, but yeah, Karen Kelly's been really, really helpful. Oh, brilliant. Thanks both. And th this last question is to both of you. Um, it's said that the play's author, Bernard Shaw, directed his actors through tempestuous rehearsals, often with one or two actors storming out of the theatre in a rage. How does that compare with your rehearsal process? We're always storming out in a rage, it's aren't we, Colin? It's pretty identical, I would have said, you know, especially with That's James. That's what makes it fun. James Natter's Keeps James on his it's, toes. It's just, yeah, it's just, it's just purgatory from start to finish, really. But, no, um, it's uh, it's been a joy, hasn't it? It's really fun. Um, we're only halfway through, actually. Yeah, it's still a joy. Yeah. And uh, I think we're just enjoying each other's performances and enjoying the jokes in Pygmalion and, you know, knowing that the audience are going to get to enjoy them very soon, too. Yeah. And similar, ter terrified of the shortness of the rehearsal period as well, which yes. is keeping us all on our toes. So, uh, not sure. But it brings a good to... energy to the rehearsal room, yeah. I think, Colin. Yeah. The urgency of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it con concentrates the mind, as they say. You know, yes. We, well, we're actually starting three weeks, three weeks in a day. Indeed. And we're <laughs> not anywhere near ready at the moment, but we will be. We will. Oh, yeah, we will be. I'm sure by the time the curtain goes up, it will be wonderful. Absolutely. So thank you, uh, Naomi. Thank you, Colin. And uh, we look forward to seeing the, the production. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. John O'Neill in conversation with Naomi Jacobs and Colin Simmons, both of whom are starring in Pygmalion at the Crescent Theatre and on tour throughout July. Check out www.crescent-theatre.co.uk for more details. The origins of outdoor theatre and the origins of theatre as a whole are essentially one and the same. The concept of a theatre with total roof cover is a relatively recent one in the history of people pretending to be other people in front of yet more people. The root of the Western world's theatrical tradition lies in the fertile soil of Greece, and the word theatre itself is derived from the Greek theatron, meaning seeing place. Historians think that Athenian tragedy emerged sometime during the 6th century BC, and it was performed in amphitheatres, which were open-air structures. Most ancient Greek cities lay on or near hills, so seating, and I use that word loosely, these were not plush red velvet pull-downs with built-in cup holders, generally was built into the slope of a hill, creating a natural rake. At the foot of the hill was a flattened, usually circular performance area known as the orchestra, which literally translated means dancing place. Like so much of Greek culture, theatre developed and expanded considerably under the Romans. They spread it across their empire and built open-air auditoriums in which to stage it. Despite the weather in Britannia province being much less favourable for enjoying alfresco drama than it was in, say, Greece or Italy, this outdoor theatre malarkey took off even here. The first plays formally developed in Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire were the Mystery and Miracle plays. These depictions of Bible stories started out as a series of tableau accompanied with songs and then developed into spoken word productions with moving scenes. Physical reenactments of religious texts became extremely popular with a largely illiterate population. Historians estimate that perhaps only 6% of the population of England could read in 1300, and travelling companies of actors, as well as community productions, became increasingly common by the later Middle Ages. Also in the medieval period, British theatre developed the Mummers plays, a form of early street theatre associated with the Morris dance, and concentrating on myths like St George and the Dragon, and popular folk tales such as Robin Hood. 
actors travelled from town to town performing these for their audiences in return for money and hospitality. Despite the challenges of the great British climate, most theatrical performances took place in venues that were either partly or fully open to the elements right up to the 17th century and beyond. Tudor playhouses like the Globe were partially covered with thatched roofs but still relied on daylight for visibility and were therefore built to be open to the sky. It is thought that the first indoor theatres in London were St Paul's, built in 1575, and Blackfriars, built in 1576. These were constructed inside existing buildings, however, rather than being purpose-built structures in their own right. They were lit by a combination of candlelight and the daylight that came in through the windows. Until 1609, indoor theatres were used exclusively by boy companies, with adults playing at the outdoor playhouses, which could hold much larger audiences. However, in that year, James Burbage, father of Shakespeare's premier tragic actor Richard Burbage, was granted permission for his adult company of players to perform at the Blackfriars Theatre, and so the move inside began. This development rapidly accelerated when artificial light options became a reality. But the history of theatre is so long that indoor venues are still a relative novelty. So the next time you're sipping warm Prosecco from a plastic glass on a camping chair, in the grounds of some stately home, watching people pretending to be other people, probably in the rain, remember that you're experiencing the magic of theatre in the way that it has been experienced for the majority of the past two and a half thousand years. Often we only see the actors performing on stage, or in a garden, stately home, or other exotic location, but there is a small army of people behind the scenes bringing a show to life. From sound and lighting designers to props makers and stage crew, there is a dizzying array of talented people whose voices we rarely hear. John O'Neill, our backstage reporter, will lift the lid on some of what happens behind the scenes, and in this episode he talks to costume designer Stuart Snape. I've made my way to the sewing room at the theatre, which is part of the costume department. For the uninitiated, the sewing room is hard to find. Navigating the doorways, stairways and corridors to reach it is akin to following an elaborate stitch to a hidden part of the building. The room is a place of work. Sewing machines line two walls. Costumes chosen for performance hang bunched together on rails. Buttons, wigs, belts, tape measures and more are methodically shelved all around. There is a large work table in the middle of the room and a small cubicle for cast members to try out costumes that have been carefully assembled for them. There is a warmth and magic to the sewing room. The assembled clothing is lovingly made ready for its brief moment of glory on stage. The lights will strike the fabric and bring the spell to life before, all too quickly, the costumes go dark once more and are stored away for some future enchantment. That sound is Stuart on the sewing machine, busy at work on costumes for Pygmalion. Um, hi Stuart, I'm just guiding our podcast listeners around the sewing room. Could I interrupt you for a moment and ask a few questions? Yeah, sure John, yeah, it's fine. You're part of the offstage production team for the Crescent Theatre's summer 2021 tour of George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. Can you tell us what your role is? Yeah, sure. Um, my role is costume designer, which is a little more than it sounds. I don't just design the costumes. I actually decide what each character wears in every scene and act. So uh, it's quite an involved job. 
But luckily, with the summer tour, although it's logistically difficult because of the different venues that we're performing, um, it's not usually a massive cast. So um, it's not like doing spam a lot or something like that. So it's, uh, it's doable. How does it feel to be back involved with the production after the theatre went dark for a year or more due to the pandemic? Well, it's, it's amazing, really. It's so wonderful to be back. And in some ways, it seems like it's been a really long time that we've been away from the place. But I have been coming in occasionally, now and again, just to keep things ticking over. And once um, I knew I was doing this job on this show, I've been coming in quite, quite regularly. So it's, it's like being back home, really. And now it almost seems almost as though we've never been away. Yeah, you know? like, so like the pandemic never happened. Yeah, almost. Apart from having to wear masks when you're moving around the building and things like that, keeping true. away from people. But True, yeah. true. And, and I should say that we are sat socially distanced two metres apart. We are. We are following the rules. Uh, Pygmalion is a period piece. It was first staged in 1913, which is 108 years ago. And I used my calculator to work that out. What part are you playing in transforming the actors and taking the audience back in time? Um, well, for me, costume is one of, well, one of the most important elements of a show um, because everything that an actor wears on stage gives the audience a clue as to what that person's status is, what their age is supposed to be, uh, and what their character is in a way. So you can do a lot with costume. So... When someone has to transform from one thing to another, it's quite um, important to get the details of each costume right, the first one and what the person trans transforms into. So. Sorry, we're in the middle of something. So right. the, the costume is a very busy department, as you can hear, so people are constantly coming and going. and It's a bit of an information exchange. Would you say that that's true, Stuart? Yeah, I would do, yeah. You mean the actual sewing room itself? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. People come here to find things out and uh, they come here when they've got lost or whatever. So uh, even though it's tucked away in a corner of the building, it's we still get quite a few people popping in. Yeah, it's a lovely place to be. Um, and just going back to the questions, Yeah. how do you know what the actors should wear? So, for example, this is 1913. How do you know what they wore in 1913 and where does that costume come from? Right. Well, um, research, obviously, um, a bit of experience, because I've been doing this job on various shows quite a long time, and I particularly enjoy doing period costume. I enjoy doing uh, the research of what someone would wear um, of a certain era. And 1913 is particularly um, interesting for me, because it, it goes from Edwardian, which was lots of long flowing dresses for ladies, and it's just before the 20s when they were shorter and mm. and much more uh, loose fitting. But research is the thing, really. Books and, of course, nowadays the internet and yeah. things like that. It's so I suppose there was a lot of social transformation around that yeah. time or just after that time. Because 1913 is just a year before the First World War as well. That's right. And during the First World War, ladies' clothes in particular became a lot more... Um, Sort of utilitarian, so mm. they they weren't as sort of uh, fancy as they were before then. So uh, yeah, it, it's it's a fascinating time. And just to take it to a, an individual character, the character who undergoes the biggest transformation in Pygmalion is Eliza, and in the story, she's picked out of the gutter 
and turned into a lady of society by Henry Higgins. Can you describe the costumes you are using to support this transformation? Yeah, well, uh, we do have a, a vast wardrobe just down the corridor, which is a massive room. It's not a cupboard, it's a room full of stuff so that, that have been used in other productions. And and how many made. costumes do you think, as a guess, are in that huge wardrobe? I just have no idea. I would say thousands and thousands, really. Um, I mean, full costumes plus other items, accessories and things like that. It, it just runs into thousands, so... We're very lucky to have that mm. and we do use it all the time because if you can use something that you've already got it obviously saves money and it saves time having to make it so we, we use that and for Eliza I, I know that there are certain things um, that are suitable for her when she was a flower girl so I have pulled out some things uh, for the actress to come in and try on and I'll go through a few combinations with her and see what she's comfortable in see what looks right on her um, because even though you find the ideal thing it may not fit so you know you have to find things a that are right and b that fit well and c that are comfortable for the actor to wear so um i've, I've got a few things in mind for that but then when she's transformed into the lady of society she'll have a completely different look and i'm using color as well as um as well as the actual costume themselves so i'm using dark colors when she's in a flower girl mode and she'll the first time the audience see her in a transformed mode she'll be in a cream light summery dress which is should look wonderful so uh, hopefully the audience will get it straight away and it's said that the play's author bernard shaw directed his actors through tempestuous rehearsals often punctuated by at least one or two actors storming out of the theater in a rage how does that compare with this production process? <laughs> well, as far as I know, I haven't been to all the rehearsals, but uh, no one stormed out in a rage yet. I think everyone here is just so glad to be back and working on a production that, you know, they'll be just into the play and loving every minute of it. And rehearsals are probably one of the most enjoyable parts for me anyway. Um, I love rehearsals. And um, the director, James, who's directing Pygmalion, he's not got a, the temperament of a George Bernard Shaw, I'm sure. He's much uh, easier and nicer to work with, I'm sure. So I don't think we'll have that problem. Thank you very much, Stuart. Very, very interesting. Oh, it's a pleasure. Perfect. That's right. good, yeah. I like that we got interrupted. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at www.crescent-theatre.co.uk forward slash podcast or iTunes to get the next episode. You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including Pygmalion, by visiting www.crescent-theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media. So until the next time. Thanks for listening. Amateur of Life and Death is a Crescent Theatre production. It's presented by Michael McLernan, John O'Neill and Luke Plimmer. The title music is by Brendan Stanley. The research is by Liz Plumpton and Laura East. And it's edited by Kevin Middleton.